if religion can mean whatever you want it to mean, a lot of people are going to say, well, gee, for me, religion is going to be how to, get, how to be healthy and wealthy. Hello, my friends. Have you ever wondered about what's called the prosperity gospel? You've heard it a lot. You've heard it a lot, especially in the United States. It's very popular. There's certain preachers, pastors with mega churches full of this kind of prosperity gospel teaching and feeling and whatnot. What does it mean? What's behind it? Where did it come from? Also, there's another question. Often we're told that, you know, Christians, really, it's a communist kind of a belief. That's what Pope Francis was saying some time ago. And there seems to be some backing for that because people say, oh, but remember, if you read Acts 5, you'll see right away that they were supposed to sell all their property, hold it in common. In fact, when they didn't, uh, Annas and Sapphira, they sold their property and held some back and they were killed at the feet of the apostles. What's all that about? Are we supposed to be communists as Christians? We'll have those questions answered today in our interview with Thomas Stork, the author of the book, The Prosperity Gospel, How Greed and Bad Philosophy Distorted Christ's Teachings. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Hello, friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 of these brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Now, each round is stamped with the image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, LifeSite's logo surrounded by a brilliant sunburst and draped with olive branches. They, of course, commemorate our 25-year anniversary of LifeSite News. We began in 1997 in September, so September of 2022 was 25 years. These one-ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com, where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. Dr. Thomas Strock, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Praise God. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Dr. Stark, if you can perhaps start with telling us uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, about uh, how you got into uh, this issue of the prosperity gospel. Well, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. And uh, I, I came into the church and, and um, well, actually, I'm a convert to Christianity, even because I wasn't really raised as a Christian. And I became a Christian when I was in high school and it was in the Episcopalian for about 10 years. And I came to the church in 1978, early in 78. And I've been interested in Catholic social teaching uh, for many, many years, even before I was a Catholic. I read that well-known book by Richard Tony, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which was about the medieval economic order and how it uh, declined after Protestantism uh, arose. And that, uh, I, later on, I discovered the papal social encyclicals and uh, I saw a very coherent, coherent uh, worldview, which was neither that of communism, which we'll talk about in a minute, I think, or nor that of the uh, current modern West. And I also began to see Catholicism as a culture, and it's not, not simply as a set of beliefs that we held in private, but as a way of life, which was meant to characterize uh, not just an individual or a family, but a whole culture, a whole, a whole civilization. And so 
I've been writing about this in one form or another for many years. And uh, this Dan asked me to write something on the prosperity gospel. And I said, well, <clears throat> okay, but it was, it's not going to be so much about the prosperity gospel as where the prosperity gospel came from, why it found such fertile soil in the United States and the philosophical and religious ideas that uh, fueled it and continue to fuel it. Beautiful. Okay. So it is, it is what is filling many, many churches. It is got super popular pastors who have gained for themselves, not only large following, but large pocketbooks uh, by basically preaching this gospel. And tell us what, how did this start? Where did it come from? Well, there have been, there have been a couple different um, roots, roots, a couple different causes that have been particularly um, uh, prevalent in the United States for this. One of them is the, the, the early New England uh, Protestants, the Puritans, the Pilgrims, uh, they definitely saw th their religion as having an overarching cultural meaning. It wasn't simply a private thing. But surprisingly, the, the New England Protestants, Congregationalists, Calvinists, they became secularized pretty fast. So by 1800, approximately, for example, many of the formerly Calvinist churches in New England were becoming Unitarians. And there was actually a big controversy in the uh, Congregational Churches of New England about that time for the, for the next 20 years, say, about, well, will we become Unitarian or will we remain Calvinist or what will we do? But uh, and many of them became Calvinists. Ralph Waldo Emerson, for example, had started out as a Congregationalist minister and he became, he even rejected Unitarianism later, it's too, it's too strict. But anyway, um, so the, um, uh, after the Puritans lost this sense of that their religion had any kind of cultural meaning, religion was a private thing. In other words, religion, you had your religion, I had my religion, it was a private thing. The public square was supposed to be neutral. And you can find this in, the, <clears throat> in many of the founding documents of the of the country, like Jefferson's Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, which says everyone's entitled to his opinion, but the law, the secular law is what has to be obeyed. So religion became reduced to simply your opinion or my opinion or his opinion. And it was, it had no meaning on, a, on the level of culture. And <clears throat> then the, the Protestantism that came to the United States, especially in the Northern and the Middle colonies was the most radical kind of Protestantism. It was the kind that rejected any, any remnant, any affinity with Catholicism. For example, the Puritans, why did they dislike the Church of England, the Protestant Church of England? Because it was too Catholic, <laughs> even though it was the first Protestant church and had started out persecuting Catholics uh, ferociously. They had, they brought, the Anglicans still had bishops, they had fancy cathedrals, they had vestments. No, 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 we don't want any of that. We want to just get back to the simple gospel as they saw. So there was no Catholic context. If you're in Europe, even if you're a secularist or a Protestant, all around you are reminders that, hey, once there was a Catholic social order, we might see a ruined monastery, a cathedral, uh, the coronation of the King of England for recently King Charles, uh, all these Catholic elements that were left over from the day, even if they mean nothing nowadays, they're a reminder that at one time there was another order, there was another way of looking at those things. But we have nothing like that in the United States. It was a matter of starting over again. And we could start over again in any way we wanted. And that was that's one of the keys to where the uh, seedbed of the prosperity gospel originated. This, this idea that 
we can start over again. We can do whatever we want. And that coupled with the um, privatization of religion and the privatization of purpose in general are the two biggest factors, I think, in uh, providing a background for the prosperity gospel. What do you mean by privatization of religion and privatization of culture? Well, as I said before, you have your religion, and religion is simply opinion. It has, um, in Europe, there was a sense, Newman talks about this, for example, he talks about Italy, in the, uh, even in the early 19th century, how there was a sense that the Catholic faith was true, even among people who didn't live up to it very well. Mm. It was all they knew. It was, a, it was a cultural thing, and, and cultural, not necessarily in a bad sense, but in a good sense. We talk about cultural Catholics nowadays, and there's really two senses of being a cultural Catholic, one of them bad and one of them good. Uh, a cultural Catholic is simply, well, my parents were Italian, so I'm going to be in a, I guess I'm a Catholic. That's not very good. That's not very adequate. But someone who realizes that being a Catholic is more than simply holding to the faith and praying, but it has a meaning even beyond the family, and it should it should have a meaning even beyond the family in the sense of, of affecting the whole society. That is a cultural Catholic in a good sense. So in Europe, there was a sense, uh, Catholics had a sense of, of cultural Catholicism that it was supposed to shape all society. In the United States, <clears throat> partly because of the proliferation of sects, there were so many different kinds of Protestants and there were some Catholics and Jews and just a whole bunch of people, uh, religion became simply a matter of opinion. And, and it was not supposed to affect how you lived outside your family. You could go to wherever you wanted to go to church on Sunday or, or the temple or whatever. But when we met as a culture, when we met in a civilization, we were supposed to leave all that aside. That was not uh, part of our life. That was, that was simply something that maybe existed in the family or the individual level. How did this then translate into prosperity gospel, at least the the version of prosperity gospel we see right now and basically name it, claim it and, and get your fortune. And if you're not getting your fortune, you're wrong with God. Well, a lot of people are <clears throat> afflicted by all kinds of afflictions, health, bad health, uh, bad economics, bad, bad, bad income and so on. And so if religion can mean whatever you want it to mean, a lot of people are going to say, well, gee, for me, religion is going to be how to get, how to be healthy and wealthy. And, um, now, there's nothing wrong, especially with health. I mean, we have the Catholic Church of all kinds of lords and other shrines where people go to pray for health. But the difference is that, and I quote Cardinal Newman in my book about how, uh, yeah, God, God has a purpose for our lives, as the prosperity gospel people would say, but God might want my life to be a life of suffering. He might want me to be in perplexity and doubt and, and confusion. And we have to trust God no matter what kind of state we're in, whether we're in poverty, whether we're in ill health, or whatever it might be, whether we're having terrible family problems, God is still in charge and we have to trust him. Now, the prosperity gospel will say, no, 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 that's wrong. If we really, if we really um, believe, and especially if you send me some money, uh, God will help you. He will take care of your economic problems. He will take care of your health problems. He will take care of your family problems, uh, your relationship problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so, but if you privatize religion, a lot of people are going to use it for whatever is most pressing in their lives, which is going to be often financial or relational or familial or something like that. Instead of, instead of realizing that we submit to God, even when that's 
kind of difficult to do at times, but God is in charge. We have to trust him. It's God becomes someone who does our, who does our bidding. And uh, that's what the purpose of religion is, after all, according to this idea, whatever I want it to be. So God is kind of like my, uh, well, servant in a way, almost. Instead of us being servants of God, it almost becomes the other way around. As long as we do a certain thing, and it often involves giving money to the prosperity gospel preachers, then we will get what we want. Indeed. If you take that to, I guess, what's the extreme other side, it's also argued. Um, when uh, people talk about the Acts 5 story of Ananias and Sapphira, they give their money to the church. A lot of people take that as, well, we're supposed to be. Communism is the way to go. Um, and uh, you don't own your property and you will be happy. That's that's the World Economic Forum program right now. That sounds good, shouldn't it? Because didn't Ananias and, Sapphira, uh, Ananias and Sapphira sell their property? They actually kept some back from themselves, and for that reason, they dropped dead. Explain that for us, if you will, please. Uh, what What's wrong with that thinking? Should I give a background where all the listeners understand the story, or should I explain it? No, go yeah, for it. In the, in the early in, in the early church in Jerusalem, it's not clear that this was done anywhere else. But in Jerusalem, all the believers shared their their uh, goods in common, and there was a there was a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who sold some land that they had, and then they brought the money to Saint Peter, and uh, and they told him they they kept some of the money back, and they told him this is the whole this is the whole money we got. This is all we got. And St. Peter said, no, you didn't. You're cheating. You, you're lying to God. And they were struck dead. Now, but what a lot of people don't notice is that in the story, St. Peter says, look, you didn't have to do this. This was not uh, obligatory to you. You could have kept all the money if you wanted. But it was the custom at the time of the church in Jerusalem to do this. It wasn't obligatory. And it wasn't in any way denial of, of property. Now, communism, of course, can mean a lot of different things. The kind of Marxist communism that arose in the 19th century and, and, and took over the Soviet Union in 1917 was a, a particularly, was one, one form of communism and, and it was characterized especially by its atheism, which was the really the, the worst aspect of it, it was atheism, of course. But Catholic social teaching as set forth, for example, in the papal social encyclicals provides what's sometimes called a third way I don't, I'm not really fond of that term, but it does provide a um, an outline for a social order that's certainly different from both Marxist communism, but also different from the kind of social order that we've created. It, for example, it puts economic activity in this place as providing the goods and services that we need to live a human life, a, a, a full human life, not simply a means of enrichment, whatever I can sell. Whatever I sell, uh, whatever I can convince people to buy, that's great. That's all I need. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, sense of in our in our culture, in our economy, in our economy, of does this contribute to the common good? It, it, if I can sell it, well and good. That's all that matters. And that's not the economic program set forth in the papal social encyclicals. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite complex, and it would take a whole show by itself to talk about the papal doctrines. But, but it's not. It's different, certainly, from communism and socialism and different from what we have now also. And if you were to give an example of that middle way playing out, um, could you do that for us? 
Yeah, uh, I can give I can give a couple examples. Um, the even in Ram Levarn, which was the first modern social circle of Leo XIII, he talks about wages, for example, and he says, "Well, uh, sure, uh, wages can be it's good for for the uh, employers and the workers to come to an agreement about wages, but he says there's something more important, more basic than than any agreement you reach, which is that the working man has to have sufficient uh, income to support himself and his family. That is an imperative that, that is more important than any agreement that is reached. And as he says, if the working man is deprived of that, he's a victim of fraud, fraud I'm sorry, of fraud and injustice. Uh, he's quite clear. And then uh, Pius XI in, in the other, in the other, what I would call the greatest socialist cycle ever written, quite a decimal in 1931 by Pope Pius XI, he sets for the whole uh, social order where the people, for example, people who produce the same product will cooperate in looking out for their the health and well-being of their industry, but not simply in terms of are we making it of money, in terms of are we contributing to the common good. And just like the medieval guilds, for example, their, their responsibility was not simply to make sure that everyone involved in, in the production of a particular product, say bakers, uh, received enough money, but to say, did the public get a good product at a fair price? And the whole economic order was subordinated to the idea of justice. That was the overriding idea, justice. Is everyone, get, is everyone who is involved in the economic process, including the consumer, are they getting a fair deal? And that is the, that is the criterion that is overriding in medieval thinking. And it's not uh, it, it tends to be absent. We tend either to ignore it or somehow think it's going to automatically arise if we have competition. And competition does not produce that. In fact, Pius XI in that same encyclical condemns the idea that um, free competition is going to produce a, a social order that's desirable. Wow, that that goes against a lot of political philosophies. What about the what? What then do you make of the invisible hand theory that will guide well, things uh, into? Let me let me uh, let me read this, if I may, from Guadalajara. It says, um, "Just as the unity of human society cannot be built upon class conflict, so the proper ordering of economic affairs cannot be left to the free, free play of rugged competition. From this source, as from a polluted spring, have proceeded all the errors of the individualistic school. This school." forgetful or ignorant of the social and moral aspects of economic activities, regarded these as completely free and immune from any intervention by public authority. For they would have in the marketplace and an unregulated competition, a principle of self-direction more, more suitable for guiding them than any created intellect which might intervene. And as it goes on, free competition, however, although justified and quite useful within certain limits, cannot be an adequate controlling principle in economic affairs. This has been abundantly proved by the consequences that have followed from the free brain given to these dangerous individualistic ideas. And he goes on this section 88 in Quadrisano. So the, the invisible hand is simply, uh, well, I guess it's, in short, it's simply false. It ignores all kinds of things. Uh, it ignores the uh, tremendous role of institutions and the legal system for example, let's take, let's take corporations as, as we understand them today. Uh, a lot of people don't realize 
that the modern idea of a corporation as a limited liability company only arose in the mid 19th century. And it arose not by some kind of a natural process, it arose by a manipulation of the legal system. So that in the early 19th century, for example, 1830 or so, uh, corporations were very heavily regulated by the state. You might have a corporation say that would build a bridge across a river or run a steamboat across the river. And the corporation would be given this one thing that they could do, they might have a monopoly on it for a certain number of years, say 20 years. And at the end of that 20 years, <clears throat> they might be renewed or they might not be renewed. But after, World, after the Civil War, corporations began uh, a kind of a power grab that's continued to our day where they got more and more rights of natural persons with none of the, uh, none or a few of the uh, liabilities and duties of natural persons. Hmm. So you can, you, you can, your, your liability is limited. You can't take the board, you can't ordinarily take the board of directors and put them in prison or the CEO and put them in prison, but they still have many of the rights of individual natural persons. So that's, wow. that's kind of an example of how the legal system, how, how important that is in um, uh, economic outcomes. It's not, they're, they're, there are some natural economic laws, but they're not as many and they're not as powerful and they rarely operate without some kind of a legal and cultural context. Tell us, if, I know it's a huge subject, could be its own show or perhaps its own series, but just briefly about banking and the concept of usury from the scriptures and the Christian understanding of that. Uh, usury means, according to uh, in, in the whole 1500-year tradition of, of discussion in the church, and as summed up in a 1745 encyclical of Benedict XIV, usury means charging any interest simply because of a loan contract. Now, there might be other reasons for charging interest. For example, if I loan you money, and because I don't have the money, I am um, going to have not be able to pay my taxes and have a tax penalty, it's perfectly legitimate for me to charge you some interest to make up for that tax penalty that I'm going to have. Or if I loan you money, and I... Um, I'm going to miss out on an opportunity, an investment opportunity. Similarly, I can I can ask for something more from you, or require something more from you to make up for that uh, missed opportunity that I have. And uh, if I if I think you're a shady character and uh, might not repay me, I can ask for a premium on the uh, on the loan, which I should pay back at the end, of assuming that you pay up on time and so on. So. Uh, it doesn't mean that there can be no interest charged. It means that there can be no interest charge because it's a simply because it's a loan. Uh, and this, of course, nowadays we have usury is, is uh, fundamental to our economic system. It works; it's present all the time. And you even have a, even have a stranger phenomenon in banking of banks creating money. Uh, I don't, a lot of people are not really familiar with how that works, but I suppose you, you deposit $1,000 in a bank and then you withdraw uh, some, uh, uh, say, $800. Now, the bank has still, had, no, let's say, you know, let's say you deposit $1,000 in a bank, okay? Now, the bank has $1,000 to do with, to deal with. You have $1,000 to your credit. Now, the bank, what is the bank going to do with that money? They're going to loan it out to somebody. They're going to loan out, say, $800 to somebody. Now, this person to whom they loaned $800 has $800 now. You still have your original $1,000, but this guy has $800. Where did that come from? The bank created it out of thin air. 
and he, he deposits his $800 in another bank and they loan out $600 of that. And now there's a new $600. So there's the original thousand, there's this other guy's 800 and there's a third guy's 600. And this can go on for a while. So banks create this money out of thin air and then they presume to charge interest on it, uh, money that they created. It's, a, it's quite a scam actually. Amazing. Lots and lots to learn. Where can people learn more about this? Where can they get your book? Uh, they can get the book from TN Books. Uh, they, uh, TN Books website is, is uh, easy to get to, and they'll, they'll find it advertised there. And uh, I, have a, I have a page on Amazon that I didn't create. It. Amazon with all my books listed, where you can find um, uh, my other books also, as well as this one. Very good. Any final words for us, Dr. Stork? Well, I, I would like to urge Catholics. This is one of the things I talk about in the book, how um, Catholics have lost a sense that the most important thing is to be a Catholic. That's more important than any political identification we have, even any national identification we have. The most important thing is to be a Catholic. And if we are Catholics first, foremost, first and foremost, then we will try to mold our thinking so that it reflects the teaching of the church, even when the teaching of the church is kind of unusual, when it goes flies in the face of, of conventional wisdom. We have to investigate this. We have to say, well, what is the teaching of the church? And the traditional teaching of the church is a powerful and coherent way of living a life. Uh, and it has a, a, a tremendous history behind it, going back to the, the apostles' time. And we really, as Catholics, this is what we should primarily be seeking to do, mold our lives as a Catholic according to the whole traditional teaching of the church that's been around and has been tested and discussed and uh, uh, is a, a powerful, powerful way of, of living our life in the even in the modern world. Is there a cultural example of that in the world today that you think hits closest, like one community that hits closest to what the ideal would be? Well, that's hard to say. I I can't. I would be hesitant to come up with. I mean, there are groups that are there are groups that are partially trying to approach this, and so far, and, and that's good insofar as it goes. I don't know that there are a lot of groups that have grasped the whole thing. You know, there are groups that they say they want to restore traditional devotions. That's excellent as a sine qua non. But unless we restore the societal dimension of Catholicism as well then we're going to be missing out on a, on a tremendous, uh, um, on an important part, of, of, important part of what it means to be Catholic. And one of the ways we can, we can mold our thinking about this is, you know, then there was a tremendous intellectual revival in Catholic thought from about the beginning, middle of the 19th century until uh, up until the Vatican Council. And we had tremendous writers like Belloc, Hilary uh, Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, Ronald Knox, Christopher Dawson, uh, and many, many, many others, important writers who had really important things to say and who addressed specifically the problems of the modern world because their, their world wasn't that different from the world we're living in now. It was modernity. And so if we read these authors, we can get some sense of, yeah, these, these are the ways that we can be a Catholic now. These are the, this is the whole gospel, not just part of the gospel, but the whole gospel. And it, it includes the social order, it includes family and includes our individual spiritual life as well, obviously. Beautiful. Last question for you. Could you 
give us sort of a description of a distributist society. Well, yeah, a distributed society would would encourage, and there are lots of ways you can do this. I won't go into the to the technical legal possibilities because there's more than one, but it would encourage uh, the ending of this separation between ownership and work. It would encourage small businesses where the proprietor actually worked in the business and he might have employees, sure, but he worked alongside these employees. They weren't simply people that he he hired and he went off on his vacation to Florida all the time. Hmm. And then for larger businesses that by their very nature aren't really susceptible to being small businesses, it would encourage employee ownership and um, uh, ownership by the employees themselves. And there are actually quite a few uh, companies in the United States that uh, are employee owned and we tend not to see them. One of the, uh, the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain that were started by a priest in the 1950s are often cited as an example of, um, uh, of a very successful distributist kind of business in the modern world as one of the most important manufacturers in Europe, but it's employee owned. Hmm. Wow, that is great. Dr. Stork, thank you so much for being with us. God thank bless you. Thank you for having me. Thank and, you very much. Uh, be sure to check out Dr. Stork's book at 10 Publishers. God bless you, and God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect.